Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. It's okay to meet your heroes. It's okay to dream. It's okay to let life float you to where you should be. In 2021, Questlove asked me to do a one-on-one interview with Elvis Costello at Electric Lady Studios for Questlove Supreme. At first, I said no. Just kidding. I jumped at the opportunity. In this part two, you'll hear Elvis and I dissect the contents of Wise Up Ghost and go down rabbit holes so deep where even rabbits are afraid to go. Yes, I had to doggy paddle through this to survive Elvis and his tidal wave of knowledge, but I'm so grateful and pleased that this document exists for the future. This was originally aired in April 2022. Wow, can't even believe this happened. Enjoy, and thank you, Questlove. Been doing a lot of interviews, have you? <laughs> Getting sick of it? Not this one. No, this one. This one. even start yet. I had no sooner resolved to stop recording and just play shows than I found myself in a three-way conversation with engineer and mixer Stephen Mandel and Questlove making Wise Up Ghost. These began as new bulletins collaged out of my old papers, but ended up in the company of brand new verses, all jammed together. Quest Beats gave the words different air to breathe and allowed me to place fresh emphasis. The words of Bedlam became the lyrics of the deadpan groove of Wake Me Up, with a quotation from the river in reverse as its hook. She's pulling out the pin from the Mississippi sessions became She Might Be a Grenade. The tracks began with drums alone, over which I sketched out guitar or bass lines. The other members of the Roots entered as the music demanded. Captain Kirk Douglas adding his guitar, or my bass sketches being replaced by a sousaphone, or the Roots bassist Mark Kelly. A Philadelphia horn section reworked motifs from my records, 
a guitar riff becoming a horn line or vice versa. In the final days of the recording, Quest summoned Brent Fisher to add the beautiful orchestrations that pulled all these threads together. Each mix that Stephen Mandel sent me got closer to the final picture. A beat dropped out here, sounds distorted out of all recognition there, voices sent out into dub orbit, new ideas appearing where others vanished. The only precedent for this kind of recording in my catalogue had been pills and soap, just some verses chanted over a spare beat with occasional musical punctuations. The original pills and soap lyrics were now reset in a dialogue with verses and lines from Invasion Hit Parade and National Ransom to become Stick Out Your Tongue. Like four or five of the songs on Wise Up Ghost, this number delayed leaving the first chord until absolutely necessary. The one chord song was something that I'd been working towards since writing Big Boys for Armed Forces, and this was almost it. I'd sampled the Italian singer Mina's 1960s recording of Un Bacio e Troppo Poco as the foundation for When I Was Cruel Number 2. But Can You Hear Me took a two-bar bass figure from Radio Silence and told the same story on a six-minute canvas. I almost persuaded Graham Nash and David Crosby to sing on that one. Graham really wanted to do it, but when I sent it to Crosby, he didn't quite hear himself in that kind of mayhem. I ended up tracking my own voice on the parts, and in the closing bars of the track, quoted one phrase from the melody of Crosby's song, Draft Morning. Clips from our rehearsal jams recorded while preparing for my appearances on the Jimmy Fallon show on NBC became the foundation of new tracks. High fidelity yielding Cinco Minutos Con Vos, four bars from the Stations of the Cross underpinning Viceroy's Row, and Quest's rendition of the intro of Chelsea, anchoring My New Haunt. It was strange to walk past Dame Judi Dench, Lindsay Lohan, or the other studio guests in the studio hallway, and then disappear through a door into the Roots' own personal TARDIS, a converted technical cupboard that served as their rehearsal room and studio. Wise Up Ghost looked out from that windowless room at a world where one woman's freedom was another man's blasphemy where one man's wealth is another man's bankruptcy, where security can only be preserved by unaccountable means, from eavesdropping to airstrikes. If peace and order are now like the law, and too complex to trust to anyone but professionals, I suppose love and understanding will just have to wait out the imminent threat. How could any father not fear the world his sons will inherit? Could I muster any hope at all? Well, the record does close with the song, If I Could Believe. Mandel had looped my own string orchestrations for Can You Be True from North, and I wrote the lyrical and vocal arrangement of Wise Up Ghost over it. Stephen and Questlove then went to work scoring it as if it were a movie, with the horns that were doubling Kirk's guitar eventually obliterating the string loop, and Quest and Frank Knuckles laying in waves of drums and percussion. It seemed at first like a piece that could only dwell in the studio, but when we performed the song on television and later in a bowling alley in Brooklyn, it really took on a life of its own. For that Brooklyn Bowl show, Quest only called a handful of songs from the record and let the roots take possession of some of my numbers, from Spooky Girlfriend to a nine-minute Captain Kirk guitar wig out on I Want You. In the summer of 2014, Steve Naive, Dennis Crouch, Kareem Riggins and I 
played Wise Up Ghost with the LA Philharmonic at the Hollywood Bowl. When Kareem kicked into a take on his friend Quest's groove at the halfway point of the song, I felt as if we might end up hovering above the Griffith Observatory. Walkers Uptown and Wise Up Ghost were never intended to be defeatist songs. The album unavoidably contemplated the unthinkable, the despair at every news bulletin. But the most surprising moment came not in a cupboard contemplating oblivion, but sitting at my own kitchen table thinking about my father. It was close to midnight when a repetitive sequence of unusually harmonized music that Quest and keyboardist Ray Angry had laid down arrived over the wire. It was clearly a ballad. We had got into this thing without any rules or consultation. Little more than a word or two had passed between Quest and me. All the dialogue had been musical. Mandel had been tireless in making his own editorial decisions and trying to satisfy those that we had independently suggested or even demanded. We had never discussed any of the lyrical content, but it had turned out to consist mostly of outward-looking commentary. I suppose we had just come to trust each other as working musicians usually do. I now found myself writing a very detailed account of my father's last days and hours, something that I had told myself would be too hard to visit in song. It did no good to push those images down if they arrived unbidden. So I sat at the kitchen table, singing into the recording function of my computer. The breath is slow and shallow too. The sky is bright Venetian blue. The cardboard sun is all ablaze. The air is painted Clifford Brown, caressing yesterdays. I wrote and sang down the entire song in one pass, mixed it down as such, and hit send before I had time to take it back. The next day I went to NBC to re-record the vocal properly. When I walked in, Quest was adamant. That was the vocal. He would not let me touch it. Funny, this list, I just looked it up. I had to look it up. This, uh, the 500 list, I haven't yeah. looked at it for years. I pick a lot of the same records today, but uh, but some I come round to again, like uh, like when I saw uh, Black Messiah and it opens with Rassan. That's what I wanted to ask you about. Let, uh, get on the mic, though. Nobody's put, found a way, a context to put that, that piece of music, kind of anything that's so so powerful as that you know that nobody's put that in a context of a movie before that i ever remember which piece of music the russ and roland kirk uh inflated tear it's the opening music of uh right of that movie wow and you kind of go well that's kind of right you know that's that's kind of what that's what that's what that music feels like to me d'angelo's influences are are vast so yeah like i was saying wise up ghost ends up becoming the ultimate flip album, uh, you know, <laughs> flipping the music, flipping the lyrics, sampling from yeah. this, sampling from that. Well, sampling from our own brief kind of live <laughs> yes. library. Right. So that's ingenious in itself. And then, you know, um, in myself, like, starting off with two ideas. One, one is to write completely new words and others to kind of do a kind of uh, sort of cut-up collage of ideas that were related 
part of it is I thought of it being in the tradition of bulletins, you know, lyric the lyrical side of it. Mm-hmm. There's not many songs in the in the group that we recorded that are to do with matters of the heart. Mm-hmm. They're mostly outward looking. So it seemed to me that then it gave me the opportunity to think about things I'd seen or things I'd written because of the way I felt about something I saw in the world or something happened and you'd write something and then that thing would happen again like a you know history repeating oh, itself. history repeating itself a war breaks out and then another war that seems to be the same kind of mistake Mm-hmm. So then you state it again, but you add the other verse that came from another time and they kind of talk to one another a little bit. Now, some people that were skeptical about the whole endeavor just thought, well, maybe you couldn't be bothered to write new words. But to me, you did write you're new hearing, words. oh, I wrote lots of new words, but but even those ones, they, some of those became to me like the version of that lyric because I got a chance to lay it down uh, a different against a different mm-hmm. foundation, you know. I mean, if you recall the way we began, the recording was with uh, a handful of the beats that, that Quest had put down, and I and were we in were we in Vancouver? Well, yeah, we but didn't the, want, the very it, first thing was pills and soap. I oh, well, there was beat, cutting up pills yeah. and soap. Yeah, yeah, there was that. But then, when it came to the newly recorded, the things that weren't sampled from the catalog, and that weren't sampled from this this bed of 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 loops that you created from the live performances. Then it was like Quest laying down those beats and me improvising mm-hmm. song structure over them. So I was playing like electric piano and bass. There's quite a lot of bass in the original draft where I'm playing the bass sort of so that there's a foundation structure. And that's, as far as I recall, I did Wise Up Ghost pretty much to the drums and maybe some, I don't know, some chords on the piano. Not very much form. The song, Wise Up Ghost? Because it's just really the sample from the... from The, the sample, the, the, yeah. the sample is really giving the tonality. So the sample is from North. Uh, yeah, it's the opening of the... Uh, it's what Vince Mendoza said to me when he conducted it. When I did it live, the same song, Can You Be True, live, he said, I'm going to take your Schumann records away from you because he thought it was so sort of Germanic. Well, I, was, I had written that opening... Like, mm. da, 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 you know, right. it was very, but that's a lot of drama, and which I heard, was just right for that. And I heard hip hop in that, oh, of course. you know, yeah. in that intro. And that's why I, I, I hear that a lot. I hear a lot of Tchaikovsky in, in, in the synth and sometimes real string, mm-hmm. you know, the synth strings that, that, that became like, I hear it a lot. I hear a lot of Tchaikovsky and a lot of Borodin. I don't know whether it's conscious or whether it's just the tendency to be in a minor. So you, I hear a lot of classical things. I don't know whether people are actually drawing that or it's just a coincidence. You end up with a few chords and a certain kind of ominous rhythm, you know, and then you get that. Right. So uh, that was that was a pretty free piece. And it built, as you recall, you built it really. All of those layers when, you know, with Kirk playing those sustained guitars and everything, that was really... Are you a Queen fan? No. <laughs> you don't like any prog rock. I put them in prog no, rock. But it would, I, Do you like I, Jethro Tull? No. I Jesus really don't Christ. like Jethro Tull. How about Yes? They're the best no, at it. No. All right. Well, if you don't no, like Yes, no, you just I don't like, like prog rock. No, I really don't like prog rock. But I did, um, I, I sort of hear, I suppose, it, is, is King Crimson prog rock? Yes. Yeah. But I mean, I never listened to any of their records, but I was aware of one record of theirs 
which I liked, which was a later one called Red that had Adrian Bellew on it and because I liked him because he played with Barry mm-hmm. and and of course Fripp played with Barry as well so I I liked that kind of thing when I, I could hear it like an orchestral instrument and that's what I heard when when uh, when uh, when uh, Kirk was playing those that's those sustained guitars mm-hmm. I thought it sounded like a Fripp part to me you mm-hmm. know so like that's what it sounds like one of his sustained guitar things I guess know? I'm still a little surprised because in my opinion prog rock is there's a lot of classical influence and there's a lot of English folk oh influence. yeah in that, in that Jethro Tull for sure but there were groups I'd like that did that better who were different, like Fairport Convention, and and you know Richard Thompson is a guitar player I really love, who came out of that group, but not so much the 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 Emerson Lake and Palmer kind of stuff or the. You just like shorter songs. I, I just think. like shorter songs, and I and I I just <laughs> like uh, you know I like Jack McDuff. I don't really need to hear Keith Emerson. Right. You know, he's he's great, I'm sure, but it's not really my thing. And you know what? I bet Keith Emerson loves Jack McDuff as well. You know, jazz but, uh, is is a lot more blues and less classical. Prog rock has all that classical in yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I love classical music, but I like actual classical music, and and I like Leonard Bernstein. But you see, to me, like West Side Story score, the original West Side Story score, you don't. It didn't make it cooler to hear it played on the organ. But maybe somebody, had, maybe it's somebody that had never heard, uh, never really thought about what that song was about, heard that tune, that America tune played by Keith Emerson and Nice, and thought, "Hey, that's great," and that's kind of a subversive idea to do that in a wild way. But I think it's already wild. I think that original version's wilder. So, as you were sampling your own lyrics and writing new lyrics on Wise Up Ghost. We were busy doing our version of sampling, actual sampling, yeah. including "Come the Mean Times" um, with the the backing sample yeah. from uh, Glasshouse. Glasshouse, I mean, Victor's Holland does your Holland label after Motown, yeah. So that beat that is "Come the Mean Times," yeah. meaning the sample yeah. and the drums that yeah, yeah. plays on it, that was five years old or something like that. He had made that five years prior to Wise yeah. Up Ghost and it just always was on the drive. He never used no, it for yeah, anything. Yeah. And I was like, that's well, something. That, but see, that's that's no different to me than if we had gone into the deepest kind of library of, of, of like we were talking before about the, you know, the, the, the sort of kitschier versions of covers of records and then you might find some quirk to the way that drum drum sounded mm-hmm. or something about or hearing even that, that it was cast. just badass and that I was kind of, like, yeah it's badass and and that's all that matters yeah when you're looking for that you know so it didn't really matter to me what the source was whether it was a new beat that 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 crest had laid down or whether you were taking it something that you had oh because i mean i didn't see i mean i was taking lyrics from uh there are some lyrics from from the river in reverse, mm-hmm. which you know was only four years old. There's others that are that are from 1990. You know, from mm-hmm. from songs from Invasion Hip Parade, which is from Mighty Like a Rose. That's 1990. Pills and Soap is from 83. But, you know, yeah. the Pills and Soap sort of like you know, and Pills and Soap was some kind of yes. realization. Of you know my my you know like Magnificent Seven was the Clash's response to to hip to early hip hop Pills and Soap was mine right so the Clash did it first but 
I'd say I was using like more authentic tools. I mean, I really only had a piano and a, and, and a drum machine. Right. I didn't have a band playing on it. There's nobody else. It's just it's just me and Steve. You know, it's me, Steve, and a Lindrum. You know, and not only were we sampling, sampling, but we were flipping melodies and horn lines yeah. from your past into changing them into guitar lines and horn. Yeah. It's an orchestrated record in that sense, and the way, and it's orchestrated and. and and you know that it, the, some of the way that it sounds is because of the way the processing in the mixing as well and the changing of texture of things things getting much smaller than they actually would be if they were played in the room together like guitar sounds squeeze right down basses kind of like coming out of balance you know drums particular drum beats you know one beat in 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 a phrase being kind of processed in some way one <laughs> You know? Well, yes, you came to me at a very strange time in my life, as they say. <laughs> but all of this, all of this is attractive to me because it's sort of like literally getting, it's not so much like trying to, the mistake it seemed to me from the get-go with using machines was to get the machines to try and imitate uh, real musicians. Right. I want the other way around, I want musicians that imitate machines. Well, that's exactly what the Roots did. Yeah, you know, but that's um, always seemed to be the best thing. Yeah. It's, it never seemed to me to make sense. When, when I was about 13 or 14, a man tried to sell my father a Mellotron. Mm -hmm. And he took him into this, we, this guy lived in a house next to the church we used to go to, and he took us into the front room, and he had this Mellotron in his front room. And he put it on, and he tried to persuade my father it was going to put all the musicians in the band out of work. You know, and he was mm -hmm. still playing in the dance band. And he said, this will replace them. Because there was absolutely no way. You couldn't play with any feel on a Mellotron because they mm -hmm. hadn't yet got the action so that you could really play with any kind of swing or anything on it. Everything was, you know, there was always a delay. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the way people used Mellotrons was much more to sound like a processed version of a flute. You know, the most famous use of it is, like, the beginning of Strawberry Fields Forever, you know? where I think, I don't even know whether the cello is a real cello that's been phased or it's a Mellotron cello, but the woo -doo, woo -doo, woo -doo, you know, flute sound. Mm -hmm. And you would never group real flutes playing like that <laughs> in that kind of harmony. You just would never play them. You would never voice them like that in a real orchestra. You wouldn't have a flute section play like that. So, I mean, that's unique to that instrument, and that's what that instrument's ended up being. If you hear one on a Radiohead record, if you hear one on any kind of record, they, right. they, it's the sound of that instrument's quirks. Right. Just like the Hammond organ was never really going to replace a, a horn section, was it? You know, it's it's a different instrument. You know. It's, mm -hmm. uh, so we, I think we kind of like drew on that thing, or you did, in the in the processing and the mixing and the cutting up, and the slight kind of disconnect that you get rhythmically then. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. 
In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Schmurder to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through... It's true magic, because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. You know, I grew up on your music yeah. and the way that that music was made. In fact, when I was coming up as an engineer here, yeah. we were still using tape. This was yeah. in the mid-90s. And I got to witness the turn from analog mm. to digital firsthand, and I became a very digital-oriented, working in hip-hop, it's a very digital realm for the, the most part. the facility of it as well is very good, and the speed with which you can edit is like tape phasing and things like that. I remember being in the time of uh, All the Seasons Beauty, the last record I made with any, with the attractions. Like some of the tracks had, had loops. Mm-hmm. It was the first time I ever persuaded the band to play with a loop since Green Shirt. Mm-hmm. Pete would never do it. He thought it was like cheating. I said, no, this is what I want. I want the relationship of drums made small against a loop that's big. Mm-hmm. Or know? something quantized versus something unquantized. Yeah, and, but I want this tension. Mm-hmm. And I'd written this song called Little Atoms, which was really just a folk song. Uh, you could play it on acoustic guitar, sound perfectly nice, but the minute that you did this thing, it had a tension between this repetitive loop that we constructed. Now, Jeff Emmerich, of course, is from an analog era. He's Abbey Road train, you know, who was there when the Beatles kind of introduced these things that they've absorbed from the avant-garde tape loops, particularly McCartney. You know, they got enamored of these tape loop electronic composers. They all sort of fed into that desire to process sounds to a much greater degree. They they spent the first part of the career being told not to touch the faders, you know, right. and they're gradually taken over the studio. We get the benefit of that revolution Mm-hmm. of them being able to experiment because everything that we've got now in a box is something that's 
most of it that somebody actually physically made an analog version of, and now we've got a plug-in rendition yes, of it. But you, you can know. still experiment with that stuff of course you and can. create new stuff. But you know, you know that the kind of edits that were possible to do on with tape, impossible. If you were, yeah. yeah, if you were skilled at it, though, you could do it. Really yeah, but, impossible edits. But the know. sheer number of edits, that, oh. like on Wise Up Ghost, you, you would know, never be able like, to do it. You can't no, do it. No, you would never. The tape would never hold together. No. <laughs> <laughs> Not every song on Wise Up Ghost is created that way, though. No. There were a couple of sessions at a couple 30 of live sessions, yeah. Right, with Pino Palladino. Right at the end. I mean, that's the weirdest thing I've ever done is I played that record is Quest. It's live, isn't it? The back in two songs are, are live. Right. Sugar Won't Work is interesting because it's a rhythmic song, and the band is Quest, Ray Angry, and Pino and me playing bass at the same time. So I'm playing up at the octave. I'm playing really a six-string guitar part against Pino's bass. So I'm playing just figures and, you know, like guitar figures, and he's doing all the bass playing. It's a weird choice of instruments, but I had that K that sounded like, um, you know, sounds like a six-string right. six-string guitar. That's what it sounds like, or baritone guitar. doesn't really have the resonance of a true bass. Right. But that was a good track to cut. I liked that one. And if I could believe, which was... Some, you know, it was obvious, an obvious ending song if it was going to be a kind of something that was more melodic after all of this recitative stuff. What would you call the vocal? I don't even know there's a word for the thing I'm doing vocally on Wise Up Ghost. I mean, I it's... On the song Wise Up Declamatory. Recitative, which I can never say, which they call when they speak in opera, you know. Sprechstimme, or as they, the Germans call it, you know, it's a version of rhythmic talking, right? But it's not versifying in the in the hip hop sense. It's but it's not singing either. Most of the time, there's not a lot of pitch involved in many of the songs in Wise Up Ghost. There's not a lot of melodic information. That where the singing comes in is in the background vocals, right? Which are mostly falsetto, mm -hmm. you know. So it's again, that's all inherited from my my teenage memory of like not so much like american records as jamaican records it's, it's that soft vocal group singing up there you know like that soft very soft not like anything like really virtuosic it's just the soft three-part group thing mm -hmm. that that we, you know that but a lot of a lot of rock bands imitated like think of the band that backed joe cocker what do they do on with a little help from my friends? It sounds like they're sounding, trying to sound like girls singing, but they don't really sound. Those aren't girls. No, it's just guys singing. Yeah, wow. singing like that. Yeah, huh. I, I thought it was a. No, there's a some group. great. There's a great. There's some great background singers there, but on the original record, no, it's guys. Speaking of great singers, and still we're on Wise Up Ghost, La Marisol right. and Diane Birch and and Brent Fisher contributing strings. Well, let's go back. Marisol was a really great thing because I knew her already, and that was Sebastian who's ended up being like really a great pal and that cohort on these last four records and EPs in between those and beyond those. You guys have been tearing it up for yeah, the last four but years. He is, like, he is really, you know, but he comes out of... Miami, so he has done a lot of work in Latin He has Latin like 18 uh, Latin Grammys. Yeah, and producer of the year twice. So, I mean, he's really got the, the you know, and it, and it goes right across the whole, you know, range of 
everything that's in Latin music. I mean, there's at least as much variety in, in, in Southern Hemisphere music as there is in Northern Hemisphere music, maybe more. You know, I mean, just in, in making Spanish model, that's become apparent to me all the more because some of those singers, I knew Marisol I'd sung with in the studio before and I'd done a track with her and, I, and, I, and, and she had sung live with us. So when I wanted to put that verse in Spanish in Cinco Minutos, which was, again, goes back to the very first high fidelity, it's that same hit, isn't it? Isn't that, isn't that what we're using there? Is the high fidelity groove? For Cinco, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so we're back in that. And now we've got it really to sound like station to I, station. I always forget what no, the you heck forget is going which one. on. You don't there. even remember. You're not even covering your own tracks here. You know, look at but I think that that one there, you know, it really was funny how it came. I said we realized this attempt to imitate Barry's kind of art. You know, he had a funk band basically for a lot of the 70s. He had a funk rhythm section, killer rhythm section. And so when we were trying to play like that in 79, we didn't really know how to get there, not so much rhythmically, but textually with the other instruments that you had to have if you were going to play the song that slowly. Now we're playing a song that's supposed to go that slowly. That new text is supposed to be over that groove. I'd written just this melody that, that there was a little more melody to that, even though the song never varies from two chords. It doesn't ever really get off those two chords. Right. There's no release. There's no four chord in, in most of these songs. It's all on the one, you know. Right. Um, so harmonically, it's really tricky to sustain the tension. So what halfway through, as a story, was a kind of answer song of shipbuilding. Was it takes place in the in a conflict in the early '80s between England and Argentina, and the second verse needs to be in a, in in Spanish, but it didn't need to be in Spanish Spanish, it needs to be in Argentine Spanish. Mm. So Sebastian and another friend of mine, his family also left Argentina in those years, wrote the, the adaptation for Marisol to sing. Marisol is Mexican-American, so she wouldn't know the different words that are in Argentine Spanish. Mm. Hence it's Cinco Minutos con Vos, not Cinco Minutos con Tu. Couldn't we get a real Argentinian? I mean, was it not in the budget? Not at that time. That came later. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that's, you know, that's one of my favorites. And it's also one of the really beautiful songs. I mean, you remember, I thought we were done. I thought the record was done. Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, there's a mix of this record that is barer than the final one. And then you told me that Quest was saying, now we're going to get Brent to do that. And I, I was like, from where? Like, how are we going to, well, how are we going to pay for that? It was the first uh, thing. Yeah. But that was a genius call. And that call alone transformed the cohesion of it as a, as a each track would have worked if we had never thought to put the strings on. Each track would have been interesting enough mm. because of the relationship between what's going on in the rhythm and the, and the, accumulated instrumental parts of the, the, the root, members of the roots added and what I was doing with the combination of new text and and you know mm -hmm. these collages of lyrics bringing a new meaning against this other rhythmic flow what was interesting to me was the songs that quest chose to put strings on it yeah. was the ones I wouldn't I wouldn't have chosen you know yeah. it was like these ones that I thought were well, fine refuse the way they were. was refused to be saved was a, was a, was but it's but it but you can't I can't hear it without it now. <laughs> right I think the the and the things like having the 
introduction to Sugar Won't Work, integrated that song, which was lighter, lighter lyrically than some of the others, mm -hmm. uh, into the body of these kind of much more grievous sounding lyrics, you know? So my joint is Grenade. Yeah, okay, of yeah. all the of all the songs, I know you love Cinco, I know you love uh, Mean Times and yeah. other songs. For me, what I was going for yeah. was Grenade. Like we're talking about um, the flip. Yeah. I was trying to essentially flip yeah. One Mogin from Voodoo. It's a song um, on Voodoo that yeah. has a similar vibe, a similar amount of space and yeah. within the song, you know, air. That was where I was like, okay, this is making sense to me because I'm covering both my quest, I'm covering my Elvis, yeah. and I'm hearkening back to this soul that we're all looking to have in this kind of stuff. So I think everything that's referenced it doesn't have to be said out loud. One of the strengths of it, people have asked me about the record, and I said I think we, you know, that that one of the reasons that it was that it ended up being the record it is whatever people expected it to be or whatever they they thought when they even heard about it my name and the roots in one sentence would just put a question mark over some people's heads whatever they thought it was i think the strength of the record is that we didn't do a lot of theorizing about what it was going to be and sometimes when an idea like you just expressed there you didn't tell me that at the time so i couldn't have reacted in a way that adjusted my performance mm. to take that further towards what you were trying to achieve I mean, the records that I heard in my head were not reference points that I even thought were <laughs> were pertinent to it, you know. I mean, I know I'm not going to sound like any of the people, as I've said, from the get-go. makes no difference who's playing in, in, in the studio, which musicians are playing, whether it's a collaborative record or essentially one that I'm driving the whole train. I'm not going to tell people where I get every cue that I've written because that's then they're going to react to that. Right. And they're gonna, they're gonna. If I say, well, this is such and such, that's just gonna. They say, when they either get laugh at you and they go, well, that's ridiculous. That's you're never gonna sound like that, mm -hmm. or they're gonna try and adjust to what they think you want them to play, right? And then you're losing the whole point of making that that reference point. Yeah. If you keep it to yourself, it's like a card you can lay down. I don't know if you remember me falling to the floor in that studio in Vancouver. Uh, shout out to Cruise Studios. Mm. Great little studio out there. We made this beat yeah. out of the, some of the drums that Quest sent, and you added keyboards and, and bass, and then you went in the vocal booth, and you sang over it in a way that I was like, all right, I got this. Like it was, yeah. it was that moment where I was like, okay, I kind of achieved at this moment like what I was maybe thinking about this could sound like where I'm creating something that's going to please everybody and that's going to please me and you and Quest and yeah. whoever needs to be pleased, especially even if they don't get it at the beginning. Because in September of 2013, Wise Up Ghost was released and nobody really cared, did they? Um, I don't know about that so much. <laughs> I'm just kidding, nobody. Yeah. But but such a different record. Well, and, which song know, was it, do you think, that we were doing that, that you had that strong feeling? Or was it one particular song? What, that nobody cared? No, no. But <laughs> <laughs> the one that you said we were in crew, which one was the one that... Uh, that grenade. Grenade. Yeah. You felt that grenade, that was... That, yeah, to yeah. me, that's the... Nobody knows, that's, but that's like the centerpiece that's for me. That's the centerpiece yeah. for you, yeah. Mm. I I guess, I guess you know, we would have different ones. I I think that that in some ways... Uh, there's so, so many different things that were hit on this. I can see Grenade. I remember thinking late on. It's got the it, guitar part from yeah, Doomsday, right? Yeah. 
And I think that, that also, you know, because it was a song that was not very widely heard originally. And again, we were reinterpreting that very soon after its original release because it's only five years earlier. It's from the Delivery Man sessions, but it wasn't on the album. So right. that's why you hadn't heard it. I have that EP, but yeah. It's, yeah, it's, but it was a fairly, you know, it was an elusive song. And I just had all the more feeling that, that thing, that that mixture between the girl dancing around the, the pole and the and the woman walking through the market with the with the you know the hidden device that juxtaposition was was becoming more that was becoming more frequent mm-hmm. and uh, more in conflict and uh that's part of the reason why I say it, the part of the lyrical uh, you know imperative is just kind of this join up experiences that you feel Otherwise, what's the hell? What's the point of doing anything if you don't feel something for it? Now, that probably leads to the most unexpected thing. I mean, we worked very long. I think we worked as long. You and I in the room worked as long on two songs that were not on the finished record. Mm-hmm. I mean, we worked a lot of time on "Can You Hear Me," <laughs> which is uh, we, we uh, and of course we had that incredible sort of attempt to get. David Crosby to sing on it, you know, because cause I had quoted the birds in one of the background vocals and I wanted to, him to sing in the background group with me. Yeah, but you got Graham Nash to say yes. Crosby said no. Why didn't we just take Graham Nash on his own? Well, I thought it would have been... I just wanted to talk to Crosby, yeah. just perverse. I mean, he just right. like... But it was... Uh, <laughs> it, it was... Anyway, that was... that was. I got to do the parts anyway in the end. I ended up doing the parts. Mm-hmm. And then we worked on another song that kind of had a... Which was the one that had the Chelsea drum drum loop? My new haunt. Yeah, my new haunt, which was a favorite of mine because it was I liked that lyric a lot, mm-hmm. and that was an entirely new lyric. Um, and then the one that really was the shock of, to me was was that I didn't expect to write. And I suppose this is what happens when you get over a period of time. The fact that we'd not spoken about anything and we didn't all have this all the shared experience on the road or playing live or we hadn't known each other for a hundred years. But there was that final group of pieces that, that were put together. Um and one of them was that was the piano piece with Ray and Quest and, and uh, you sent that to me and I wrote the words um, and sang it at my kitchen counter just on my on my laptop without a microphone even mm. you know just so it's just the, it's just the vocal that's the internal microphone over the track which had the sound of like distortion yeah. like yeah things. but uh, sometimes it's like when you used to record on on you know uh, eight four track cassette mm-hmm you would spend a million years in the studio trying to get the same distortion as the cassette naturally gave you. <laughs> and you couldn't understand why you couldn't get it to sound as kind of crushed and exciting, <laughs> you know, for everything fighting for space. Right. You know, it's like really somebody should have, could have come in with a graph and just explained it to you, you know. <laughs> so that was the same sort of thing. It was a f- total fluke. And I came to the studio the next day with very much the intention of re-recording the vocal with proper fidelity. And you played it to Quest and he said, that's it. And that's as much direct intervention as I think that we ever had about any song. Everything else was like, okay, you go 
this, I'll do this, and then this, add it here, and then in the mix, you're making it agree. But that I only mentioned because the, what was unusual about it is everything else was outward looking mm-hmm. in the whole record, really, right. except that one song. I suppose If It Could Believe was a statement, but after everything that had been observed in the other songs, you could have a song called If It Could Believe. If you just only say the title, you know what it's about, you know? The disillusionment that you would arrive at after all the other miserable observations and the rest of the record, you get to that one. But Puppet was a minute-to-minute description of my father's death. Mm -hmm. It's not a song, one, I would have ever imagined I would write, two, that I would record. I'd written two songs about my grandmother's passing that I felt were, one of them was quite joyful, Veronica, and the other was quite a celebratory in its own, it was an emotional song, That Day Is Done. Both wrote with Paul McCartney. That this one, you know, it wasn't like I'd written it with Steve Naive. Somebody had known my dad. Mm-hmm. You know, it was Ray's cyclic kind of chord sequence over that beat that Wes was laying down. It was just all there, mm-hmm. and I didn't have to do very much, and I just had to sing the words. Mm-hmm. And of course, I just thought the fidelity would never hold up. Did you write the words while listening to the beat, or did you have those words? I, I don't even remember. I think I think I just started writing. Yeah, probably stream of consciousness. Yeah, it was really stream because it was like obviously something that had been re- I'd been ready to set talk about. Well, he had just passed away recently, right? Fairly, yeah. fairly well. He passed in two thousand eleven, so it was pretty soon. And I'd spent, you know, I'd been writing a book, and I'd written a lot. And it was really about my grandfather and my father both being musicians before me. And it was a slightly romantic fantasy. And I really probably kept him in the room with me writing it. You know, that was the way I dealt with it. And the only song I've ever written about it, I've written several songs about my father, but always transposing to some other character, but not this one, which was literally describing, you know, they're giving them these pills and he's now he's leaving and, mm-hmm. and the coffin's is closing the whole bit you know he's going in the grave that's all in the song and if you listen to it you know i remember you told me that you didn't want that on the vinyl edition because you didn't want to hear that song i didn't want to hear it every time i didn't i thought that the and anyway i thought it was kind of selfish as part of me well it was because it was wasn't wasn't a collaborative experience it was maybe something that some of us had gone through but it was the other things we had all contributed to the setting of the the resetting of the words or the new words had found in this home in rhythm and the members of the roots had come in and played their parts the horns had played their parts brent had written his strings and you had pulled it all together and it was a, such a uh, ensemble piece in that way it was a collaborative piece collage like anyway because it wasn't played by a group in the room kind of and then when we did play it it changed shape again mm-hmm. and became a lot, you know, freer. And then when Tariq came and played, that added another dimension because then, you know, in the end it was worked out great because he did that amazing, Kareem Riggins did that amazing remix of Think mm-hmm. Wise Up Thought. Wise Up Thought with, with, with Black Thought on it. And the shows when he came up and we did, you know, Ghost Town and we did these other songs from my repertoire adapted and Kirk played like a huge long solo in I Want You and we did John Lennon's I Found Out and right. all these other songs that sort of all kind of sort of it was like going back to what we started out when we did the, the appearances on, on, on the show 
because mm-hmm. we were suddenly doing songs of my repertoire and Spooky Girlfriend, which was for you know one of the re- other records that I made with Machines. Mm-hmm. But I just started out with just a really cheap sample, a really cheap drum machine, and a Dan Electro, and no band, and that was like just before the Imposters started playing together. So the interesting thing about Puppet and the fact that it's about your dad, recently listening to it, I'm like, wait, this is Mother from yeah. Plastic Ono Band and a song about his father. I mean, we were referencing Plastic Ono Band in a couple different ways on that record, I think, and it came out Yeah, and then it came out with, I found out. <laughs> I got a great mix of that going, yeah. by the way. Uh, Good, a rehe- I want to hear that. Rehearsal yeah. session. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through... It's true magic, because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Dangerous Amusements. Yeah. There's a podcast now about you. Uh, uh-huh. Have you been listening to that at all? I, I, I'm aware that Mark Billingham did it, the crime writer, because I did a, because I just saw that he he wrote uh, something to us saying he was doing it, he told us. Yeah. But I, I I can't listen to stuff about yeah, That's it's hard. I'm it? sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I was listening today, and I heard an interesting point by one of the guests. And because you were talking about these headlines on Wise Up Ghost and these yeah. outward-looking things about society and so forth, it's almost as if you're uh, Nostradamus predicting things that are going to be happening in society and Which in government. Which particular thing and, is, is They is were it? talking about Trump. They were talking about brilliant mistake. I did. I used to make a joke when things seemed funnier. You know, when it seemed to all be like a horrible kind of delusion of a different kind um, that all of this, you know, when people were complaining about songs being played at political rallies, I could say that could go on forever with my songs, waiting for the end of the world, you know, sort of <laughs> beyond belief, you know, brilliant mistake, accidents will happen. We've got a million of them, you know. Right. The, the point is when I was working for five years on this version of Bud Schulberg's play, uh, facing a crowd, which was set in the fifties, when there was about a hillbilly singer who comes up into prominence and then wants to become a, a man of political influence, people said, "Oh, that's just like the president," you know. And I went, "Yeah, but you've got to remember the guy that wrote that story 
didn't know anything about Richard Nixon, didn't know anything about Ronald Reagan. How could he see the future? He wasn't Nostradamus. And and the truth of it is, there'll always be another monster. He'll have a different face. He'll have a different set of clothes. Or, you know, there's been, you you look back in history, okay. and it just gets repeated. That's right. all. Right, history. So getting back to what happened after uh, we released the record, Jimmy was nice enough to give us two nights on the show. Yeah. The very end of Late Night with Jimmy Fallon before we turned over to The Tonight Show. Mm -hmm. Gave us two nights where we not only played two songs a night as the music guest, but... We ended up playing everything from the album over those two nights, and then and with the set, with the with the with the string section and everything, strings with the, with and the, horns, the yeah, absolutely yeah. fleshing out some things that would later be in the only four concerts. Yeah, that happened. How did that happen? Oh, I don't know. You went on tour solo after that, hey, but you guys uh, are just as hard to pin down. I mean, it's like it's. A, I think I would have done it, uh, no problem. I think it was just always so difficult. Everybody's got their world. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it wasn't, I suppose, the greatest news for the imposters. I remember being in Australia after we'd made, I think we only had the rough mixes and, and taking the band out there and say, oh, by the way, I've made a record with the Roots. You know, <laughs> right. that didn't go down terribly well. That was not quite as bad as down the attractions. There was nothing to play on King of America, but, you know, it was close. And then I rode around in a car and played Pete the the rough, you know, and they kind of got the idea of it. Mm. And then, of course, the other thing is that since then we've we've adapted several of the songs into the Impostors repertoire. You know, mm. Mean Times was in there for a while. Sacramentos has made an appearance. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the others not so much, but Tripwire's been in there now and again. You know. But those four concerts, that's, that's what we should be talking about. Those Three of them were great. Yeah. Brooklyn Bowl, the first show, obviously yeah. the energy there, the yeah, legendary that was, show. That was great. The Cap Theater in Port Chester, yeah. they were reopening. I don't think they had the sound quite right yet, and it was a little weird. You and the Roots were very much separated on the stage. Uh, I don't remember that one being as, 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 as electric as the... It as wasn't. The, yeah. I remember the very opening was really great at, at the Bowl. I remember being backstage and... Quest laying it down and I'm coming out and I thought this is the way to do this this is now now we're into a different thing now we're into kind of performing mm -hmm. not making records we're into performing so we've got to involve stagecraft we've got to have other repertoire people don't know this record yet that's mm -hmm. the point of us being here I would say that with you know you have to give Don Wells credit he's here with us with me and Quest and we did a presentation oh here it, yeah in this exact room where <laughs> we're sitting exactly where Don was it was Don's idea to make the cover look like like a City Lights cover. He wanted it to look like the cover of Howl by Allen Ginsberg, which was a sort of visual quote mm -hmm. in graphic design that he wanted it to give it the sense that these words were consequential because it was a famous book of poetry. You know, I thought that was a compliment he paid me. Mm -hmm. Whether or not it's deserved, I don't know. But I, I appreciated that he wanted to say this was consequential in some visual way and the only mistake the record label could could be said to have made was perhaps not seeing it through to immediately follow the remix record with the live record but the trouble was i didn't have a long-term contract with blue note i was only on blue note because they took this record right we all just took it's that kind of record. fun to have an album on blue note though yeah it? well i mean <laughs> there is hardly a label in the universal group that i haven't been on i you know people say oh he started out on stiff records <laughs> yeah, I also made four records of Deutsche Grammophon, which is mm -hmm. which is three more than I made for Stiff. Mm -hmm. So it, you never know when you're going to get to do things 
in music, you know, mm-hmm. or what label. And the labels all change around and they change. I was on Island Def Jam, you know, different times. Mm-hmm. They saw something in the record I was making then, that, and that was where to put it, you know. There were those two shows in Brooklyn and Porchester, and then there were two shows in Vegas at the Brooklyn Bowl yeah. grand opening. Yes, there's a Brooklyn Bowl in Vegas. Yeah, there's and, one in Nashville. And to me, that was, like you said, the shows, because Tariq was there, Marisol yeah. was there, and you guys had played through this set a couple yeah. times Yeah, previously. by then we had, we, had, we had those other things as well. We had those other numbers down. Yeah, those shows were, yeah. were really great. Yeah. Also in 2013, you played with The Roots again at a Prince tribute Whoa. concert. Moonbeam Levels was the song <laughs> you played. <laughs> <laughs> I just knew that I was going to get put through it. You know, I knew that I knew when I agreed to do it, I'd be given the most obscure, <laughs> like the one that's only that's only known the Prince song that's only known on a on a cassette that somebody found in a drawer. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's a great song. It's a great song. It is, and we did it at the we did it. Didn't we do it uh, a, a warm up? show at the the winery at the winery yeah, yeah. But the show was at carnegie hall yeah. yeah and then we moved and i remember i got to carnegie hall and i had the i had the conductor dressing room and it said on the piece of paper on the on the on the door that with had the axe it said i was going to start on prince mm-hmm. i was sharing a dressing room we were supposed yeah. to be sharing a dressing room, which mm-hmm. i somehow could not imagine actually happening and i guess there was some i don't know whether that was just being nice to everybody was prince ever going to be there was no there? but did you ever meet Prince? I met him just once. I, 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 uh, yeah, I was introduced to him at uh, an event. My wife had uh, played uh, a piano number. Uh, it was a, it was the Music Cares tribute to Barbara Streisand, and Prince was sitting a few tables away. Uh, from from us, and when I came back out to my table after Diner played Down with Love, he kind of just looked at me and did a kind of silent movie take. Yeah, he just did like a little mime of the piano. Oh, okay. And did a little look, like one of his looks with his eyes, where he just went, you know, like he didn't need to say it was like <laughs> he just said that was good. You know, he knew he was saying that was. He just went like this little mime of the piano and like. Did a little like double take kind of thing with his eyes. That's your only experience meeting. Prince. And then, and then when Diana came back to the table, then suddenly um, we had a vi- couple of visitors came over to compliment her on her performance, and it was Tavis Smiley mm-hmm. and Dr. Cornell West. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Cornell said, "Have you ever met Prince?" And I said, "No." <laughs> I said, "We're going to meet him now." <laughs> so like, and he took us over, and really, there was Prince didn't have any choice but to meet us, mm-hmm. and he was very gracious, and he complimented Diana, you know, and we, that was the only time we ever met. And then, funnily enough, at the end of the night, he got up, and we were everybody was watching, like, is he going to play? What's he going to sing? You know, is he going to sing "Don't Rain on My Parade"? You know, or is he going to sing one of the Barbara Streisand songs? Mm-hmm. And it, and in the end, when the lights came up at the very end of the evening. He was there at the microphone, and, and he was the music cares recipient for whatever year it was. Is that's Marvelous Streisand, and he introduced her, and that was it. Mm-hmm. So that was the that was a truly surreal evening. But I, but I got to say thanks to the doctor for taking us over there because mm-hmm. you know it's one of those situations. If you see somebody across the room, are you going to walk over and 
run the risk of them being discomforted by you making that overture. Right. You know? But when I'd had you... a little bit of dealing with his publishing people about trying to quote one of his songs once, as you know, he wasn't always kind of very comfortable with that. I'd quoted Pop Life on one of my recordings. Right. And he wouldn't clear it. And, or they wouldn't clear it. I quoted whether, the lyrics or the music? I uh, quoted it. It was incorporated into a song called uh, The Bridge I Burned, which is the last thing I ever cut from Warner Brothers. And I figured he's got a, he wasn't any happier with Warner Brothers than, than I was by that point. So I figured it would have appealed to his sense of humor. But I guess it, it didn't feel right. So I played Pop Life in the mid-'80s in the show. The first time the spinning wheel was there, Pop Life was on the wheel. Then I incorporated it, and when I quoted it, he wasn't so comfortable, or somebody who was in charge of publishing wasn't comfortable with the quotation. Mm. So I adapted it into a different thing, and it, it never came out in that form. A couple of very current things, and now I feel like a real journalist. As current <laughs> as today's headlines, yep. you signed a new publishing deal with BMG. That's right. For your entire catalog. That's what right. does that mean exactly? It means they administer my, my compositions for the next, you know, for the duration of the contract. But you own them and they administer them. Is yeah. that the idea? Yeah. I mean, there's a big season in people uh, mm. selling their rights, both in publishing and masters right now. Right. So how does but, this differ from masters? Well, masters are the recordings, which uh, I also own, Sweet. except for the, for, the, for the six records I made for Warner Brothers, which they own. Um, and they don't revert you know they don't they know they don't come back to the artists that they're, they're in theirs in perpetuity as far as i understand mm -hmm. really what does it mean the difference is when you control the composition say if somebody came and wanted to include one of my my, my songs in in a movie and uh they wanted to re-record it they would only have to pay me for the for the composition but if they wanted to use my recording, they'd need the master as well. So that way mm. you would benefit on two sides of the deal. So there is money as a, as a, both a recording artist and a, a published But you composer. didn't sell your songs like Dylan or no. uh, Springsteen no. did. Because those, those calculations are based on very, very much more successful songs than mine. They, 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 those things are not done. They, they make a lot of speeches about, about how culturally important those artists are, but in reality, they have generated tremendous revenue for the people for you know over years mm -hmm. and those established so if you see somebody like a stevie nicks or somebody like that those are monster multi-million selling records i've never i guess i just I've assume never that... had i've never had a million selling record in my entire career okay and and, and you know in the initial period of release some of my albums may have sold, i've bought a million you know, records of yours okay so this is by far uh, not you know i mean as i see it my job, although I've been for more of my career now with with a major record label, my relationship with with major record corporations is pretty much like that of an independent filmmaker is with a studio. Mm -hmm. You know, independent filmmakers are not under contract to a studio. They make a production for a studio and then they might take themselves somewhere else and get the finance for a different film elsewhere. Sometimes they get independent finance. Mm -hmm. and that's the model of Stiff Records, which borrows a thousand pounds to form a record label, and that's the beginning of my career. Mm. By the time I've gotten signed to Columbia in America and then later to Warner Brothers for the World and then on to what became Universal, as I said, I've been on all these imprints. But uh, in terms of, of this, 
issue particularly of uh, publishing, you would have to have had like the kind of major, major multi-selling for, for it to be in your interest to sell your rights. Mm -hmm. It just isn't, doesn't make sense. Because you know why? Because I'm holding 600 lottery tickets, you know? Right. That, well, that's, I mean... Okay. Any one of those songs but could be... Are you able and, to think... And can you imagine if you sold the rights, having not had any of them be, you know, I'm not covered very often, but that could happen any day, wouldn't it? You know, All I'm trying to do is get the money to make another record. It's because you're a freaking artist and you don't care more about money than you do about art. Well, I, I, I want to get paid. I want to get paid for what I do, but I'm not trying to accrue so much wealth that I can stop working because what would I do with myself? What would be the point? I wanted to do this for as long as I can physically do it. I want to do it. That now may not be that much time ahead. Let's be truthful. I mean, I don't know that. I look at people who are playing in the late seventies, eighties and think, wow, there's a few people that are really exceptional that are still doing incredible work when you get up there. And a lot of our really most most precious artists in the whole history of recording, when you look at when they passed, they were only like three or four years older than I am now. Mm -hmm. You know, it's quite shocking. Well, don't when you, die when, right now, okay, no, when you not look on at air. The, when you look at the people that we really are for all time the greatest, Mm -hmm. that are not with us. I mean, there's not just the ones that died like at 30. I'm talking about people that died at 73, mm -hmm. but still have like more music than most people would ever make if they lived to be 173, you know. So are you in a mindset at this point in your career where like, like you literally just put out four albums in the last three years. Mm -hmm. I know you're probably conscious of a legacy, but are you intent on leaving us more and more gifts for the next hundred years, as many gifts as you can, I should say. I'm not much concerned about l legacy because that's really only something that's probably considered after you're gone. Well, I care, I won't be here. I just think it's like, do the thing that you feel. Everything that I've done that hasn't been what I was known for when I started or what, what made my name at the start has caused some kind of horrified reaction when I first did it. And that's, <laughs> that ranges from what from from Almost Blue, the country record in 81, all the way to Wise Up Ghost. Some people can't understand it. Then the penny drops like five years, 20, yeah. 20 years, 30 years sometimes later. The, the records that seem to be the, the most challenging for some people to absorb also have their own audiences. Like there are people specifically that like the Juliet letters that didn't buy my Am Is True or weren't around when I when I made these records that supposed to feel sentimental about when I made the record with Burt Bacharach. So they got every chance just to, just to come in the door any time you make anything good. This is kind of an obvious question, but do you look up to a guy like Dylan for continuing to tour and make records yeah. at this point? In I mean, career? I saw Dylan play in, in, in uh, Philadelphia, actually, uh, uh, just before Christmas, and... It was honestly the best show I've ever seen him give. I mean, it was astonishing. <laughs> the, the shows now are the best shows it was that he's ever it done. It was completely astonishing. I mean, his <laughs> the clarity of his vocal, his yes. focus on the on the, on the words, his voice sounds the story, great. his voice. As I I I've got theories about why it is. I think it's because of the the singing of other people's songs seem to kind of like put him in touch with something he, that he can do with his voice. Is it does his voice sound older? Yes, of course, because he's, he's 80. Does it sound, is it musical? Yes, if you know anything. Was it ever like 
was it ever like Andy Williams? Did he ever sound like Andy Williams? Did he ever sound like Eddie Kendricks? No. Did he sound like Enrico Caruso? No. But he said, in, you know, I can sing just as good as, as those people because in his own way he can. And what he's doing, you can't learn what it is he knows. You can't learn. You can't go where he is. That's like listening to Sonny Rollins or something. You can't, you can't go where he is. He's forgotten more than he has. we'll ever know about. You no, know, he has really. As the Davis sister said, I've forgotten more than you'll ever know. Mm -hmm. Speaking of Dylan-type gigantic music figures, we did a Johnny Cash remix uh, <laughs> oh, short, wow. shortly I after. I love that record. Do you now? I do. I do. <laughs> okay. I love that record. You know like that record? I'm happy we did it, and it's pretty darn cool, but I, I don't think it makes sense in my head. I don't know. Johnny... I mean, I his mean, song makes sense in my head. I love the song, but I what think we, the way what we, we did, did it was really, I mean... Slightly bizarre, but fun. No, but uh, I mean, I think that... Hey, John was... John was a you know, rebellious kind of... You know, he, he didn't have any... He wasn't trying to sound like other people when he started out. He had two guys that really couldn't play, but they just had feel. I mean, they weren't like virtuoso musicians, but they played exactly what he needed. When he had the Tennessee Two... You know, it was just like, it's not, I'm going to say they couldn't play. Of course they could play, but they couldn't play like, they, you know, they couldn't play like Ray Brown or Charles Mingus or something on the double bass. It's just putting the rhythm down and the guy playing the guitar, Luther Perkins, is just doing perfect stuff for Johnny and the rhythm of those early records. And then right at the end of his life, he made those records. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, a couple of those records are really great. I think it got to be a bit of a riff at the end, you know, like uh, like I don't think the song choices were as were as imaginative after the first one, but the When did the term Americana appear? Well, it goes way back, but I mean, I think when it when it started to become like people with waxed mustaches and itchy waistcoats and everything, I think that's about 20 years ago, isn't it, or something. I don't think that's Americana. You see, I'd think that it's Johnny Cash music, whatever he's recording. Right. That's so why I think if Johnny Cash, would, you know, I mean, I bear in mind, I worked with the guy who produced the original record that we remixed. Mm -hmm. That's a Billy Sherrill. And Billy Sherrill had no business ever being in the studio with Johnny Cash at that point in their respective careers. Mm -hmm. I think that Johnny was not valued by Columbia the way he should have been, given that he was the... He was the founding country music artist on that record label. You know, if if Columbia had dropped Bob Dylan in the same year as they dropped both Miles Davis and Johnny Cash, I think people would have had something to say about it. But that didn't happen. Mm. You know, it was a completely un inexplicable thing, given that's the changing value of companies relating to their founding artists. If you think that everything Johnny Cash did for Columbia, that they could let him go. That's mm -hmm. inconceivable. In the same way as it's inconceivable that they didn't want to keep Miles Davis. It's about loyalty, Columbia. Come on. No, it was just nonsense. But, I mean, so I, I benefited from that in the sense that John recorded two of my songs on his first two records for Mercury after he left, after all those records he made for Columbia. But the record that we remixed was on one of the from one of the last sessions that he did, and there was a disconnect, obviously, between where Johnny could go, and the kind of way they made records. You heard the parts; the musicians sounded like they were asleep. 
right. when they were recording. I mean, it was very, very flat. They're, they, they're all great musicians, but there was no inspiration to the arrangement. So all we did was replace a bunch of things. And took the song to outer space? And took it to know? outer space. Because <laughs> that's where it belongs. Yeah, I actually think it... It actually... It's like the missing song on Song Machine to my ears. It sounds kind of like what would happen if the good, the bad, and the queen kind of backed Johnny Cash. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, let me run through these last couple things just in case the world blows up. I can get to the end of this list. Yeah, yeah. The Hollywood Bowl in 2014, on my birthday, you were playing with some symphony and Kareem Riggins. <laughs> Dennis Crouch, <laughs> yeah. And Steve Naive, yeah. Yeah. No, that was, uh, that was with the, it is actually the, uh, I don't know what's the LA Phil or the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra. I think it's the I LA think it's Phil. the LA Philharmonic. LA Philharmonic, yeah. yeah but, it, but it's sort of summer LA Philharmonic. It's not the, it's not the full LA Philharmonic. It's like, it's not, you know, they, that's a good orchestra, though. Yeah, and uh, and really great conductor, yeah. and uh, we did a whole bunch of. I mean, I worked on a. I learned how to write that stuff down when I worked in the nineties. When I worked with the Brodsky Quartet, I, I, you know, because they only talked to one another in written notation. Uh, they didn't improvise in that sense. I had to learn to be coherent and be a good partner in our collaboration. I had to learn how to write music down. I'd had no need of it before then. Now, everything that I had written that was a larger group, I'd kind of played it to somebody who had then written it down for me. Mm. And that was a bit laborious and things would get twisted, you know. So, and then I, of course, got curious what would happen if I wrote bigger for more, bigger than a string quartet, wrote for a chamber group and then gradually for a big band and for a symphony orchestra and wrote some of those things you mentioned earlier, like uh, wrote ballet music for a, a company in Italy and another one for for the Miami City Ballet, and and I learned how to orchestrate to my own satisfaction. It's not uh, certainly not textbook orchestration, but orchestration is the same as arranging. Well, it's the actual writing each individual part 
you know, like you would write for the horn section, but it's for the whole orchestra. So you've got to imagine everything, including the, the percussion parts and everything. So you're writing. There's not often time written for an orchestra, but sometimes they'd have the right time. But you're just writing punctuations, you know, and timpanis or snare drums, hand, you know, some little thing. Well, the reason I brought up that yeah. specific concert was... Well, because we played. Uh, we played Wise Up Ghost. played Wise Up Ghost, It was yeah. extraordinary to play it with Steve, you know, playing the piano introduction and then, you know, with the strings and... And Kareem. And Kareem. And then Kareem just playing a sort of rendition because Kareem understanding very much what Quest was playing. Mm. On the studio recording, the album version of Wise Up Ghost, there are two Quest loves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's one in the left speaker and one in the right hard panned. Two yeah. totally different drum takes playing slightly different things. Oh, so, yeah. You know. I remember when you first played that to me, I thought that was the, that was the making of it, you know, it was the scale of it. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, Kareem played a precy of that, I suppose you would call it, like a distillation of all of that. Mm-hmm. And Dennis, of course, is coming out of like he played on those records I made in Nashville uh, with T Bomb, but he's really from Bluegrass. What, which records? He played on Secret Profane, Sugar Cane, and National Ransom. He played the bass line that is in Stations of the Cross. Like, dun, 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 dun. Mm -hmm. And he is like, he could play in any group. Mm -hmm. Dennis Crouch, you could put him in Metallica, he could, he could hold his own. Same he's, with Kareem. Yeah, I mean, he's got the sort of like emphatic way, although he plays. I've never. I don't think he plays electric bass. I've never seen him hold an electric bass. He plays. He's a double bass player, but he's he played in Diana's band for a while with Kareem, so that rhythm section became Diana's rhythm section for a while, mm -hmm. you know. And she had, she had also Stuart Duncan, the fiddle player, along with Mark Rebo. Different times. It's good to change it, you know. So, yeah. Yeah. And so after that, American Tune, kind of wow. the uh, kind of the only bonus track from Wise Up Ghost, yeah. sort of. Yeah, and really, really kind of the only other song from outside, you know, other than live. We're the only other thing since the Squeeze song that, that we had done by somebody else. By Paul Simon, American yeah. Tune, everybody. The drums are from your performance with Quest and James of Brilliant Disguise. That's right, yeah, yeah. That's where the drums come from, and then the Roots played... There's a the, lot more on it, though. There's some great stuff from Ray on there. And, and, and Mark, yeah. Yeah, there's really good lock together. Yeah. And that's another one of those ones where, you know, it's singing it, and then there's sort of, like, vocal group stuff that I was doing as well, like vocal group stuff. Yes. I got yeah. into that kind of soft falsetto kind of vocal group stuff. Mm -hmm. That's like... There's stuff like that on Hey Clockface. There's like that kind of music is always, it's always somewhere. When I harmonize with myself, it's a different thing. Because mm -hmm. you, you, get, you get what happens you, when it's the same voice in different registers. It, 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 you know, it's different than a blend of three different timbres. It's the same voice, but it's doing this sort of, a, sure. sort of chorusing effect. And it kind of creates a siren-like effect, you know? Sure. Bear in mind that, as I said, when we did Imperial Bedroom for the stage with the songs from that record and the other songs that I felt belong with it, which some before, some after, a lot of those songs were ones that had vocal group arrangements and it led to Look Now. Which you is never all, played the song Imperial Bedroom. No, I never did. No, 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 that's not a great song. But the um, the uh, but it's, it was written after the album, so it didn't feel like part of the album to me. But the... Uh, when we did those arrangements, there was four voices on stage. And you see, there was at least four voices on the Imperial Bedroom record. Sometimes it would be much more than that. I'd be tracking and tracking. So 
you know, having the four parts covered at least between Kitten and Brianna and uh, David Farragher, that's one thing for sure that the attractions ever had was vocal harmony. You know, so. Well, but you were able to do that stuff in the studio. Oh, just yeah, not in the live. studio. I love yeah. doing it, but that would sometimes be the difference between why a song became a big part of the show and not so big part. Because when you get it and do it on stage, you'd really miss those vocal parts. You know. One last thing, the final thing I could remember is you were nice enough to record one of my songs oh. in this very room as well, yeah. uh, right in this space, wishing we could, as yet unreleased. Unbelievable that that is unreleased. I listened to it again the other day. Not, not just because we were going to be here, but I just happened to play it. Um, both versions are beautiful, but the, 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 I mean, the band version is particularly, I mean, they're both great. I don't know which I like better. It depends on which day I play them on. It's like asking me about that 500 songs list, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's a really beautiful record, and we must see it come out. Yes. Maybe, you know, maybe, you'll, maybe you should play a little bit of it here ah. on this. And that just just enough to tease somebody to put it in a movie. I always thought it should have been in a movie. Yeah, well, hopefully this year we'll see that come out. Yeah. You and I have known each other for at least 10, 12 years now, but, and I've asked you a lot of questions like, mm -hmm. who the fuck is Joe Porterhouse and what was going on <laughs> in that uh, house in uh, Battle But I think overall, how do you continue to stay properly inspired or inspired enough to do another great album like, the boy named if with a book and uh, and the artwork and everything else where it's like you know you've done so many records you've been at it for so long and there are so many other things that inspire you besides music well i mean the other things that you get to do particularly like daft things like you know walking on in a film like wearing glasses and a hat like i might be wearing that's kind of a bit of fun to do one day but it's only one day and then people see it and they think that's you might be your career but playing, writing songs is what I've been doing since I was, I mean, it's 50 years. And writing songs around that time, I was writing songs right away when I was, I wasn't playing other people's songs when I first played in public, I was playing my own song. Mm. So it's, I don't even know how many songs I've written in total because there's lots of unpublished un, uh, songs. I don't suppose any of them are any good, but, and there are many of them, I've got the words in an old book, but I can't remember the tune, you know, so does that really matter now? It's not, you know, but the opportunities have all come along and, and I didn't go to college. I left school at 17. So uh, I feel as if I got that education that I might've got in other ways from traveling, from listening, and of course from the collaborative experiences, including with the original band and this band, and including growing up to some degree or sharing a lot of your life with two guys that are in the current band. Steve and I barely out, barely not a boy, you know. He was 18 when he joined the attractions. Mm -hmm. He's 62 now. So you've seen things happen in all our lives, you know, getting married, get divorced, children born, grandchildren born even. Those are things that have an impact and feed into the writing of songs. So what else are you doing but living? I mean, you're living, if you're trying to do it to just become, you know, when, they, when I get asked, as you will do, as you're traveling, you know, my son or daughter wants to be in music, what would you say to them? I'd say, do you want to be in it for music or do you want to be famous? Because certainly if you want to be famous, there's easier ways to do that. You could become a bank robber or a venture capitalist or something or a Bitcoin entrepreneur. But if you were doing it through music, you might really want to have that as a vocation. And I got to make my 
vocational occupation. So that's the best deal you can get. So you it? just look at it as a job. It's like a job. You gotta keep writing and keep it's recording. It's a job, but it's got. To, but in order to make it alive, like every show you go into, you've got to think why you're singing that song. You, particularly the older ones, you better have a reason for singing it because if you don't have a reason for singing it, like you've got something that you feel about it still. You better leave it alone because otherwise you just they're going to applaud the first eight bars, but they're not going to applaud the last eight bars because mm. people can see that or hear it or sense it. Yeah, everything else is just luck, isn't it? That that what you comes to you, and the collaborations <laughs> are so sort of mind bending to me that they ever happened. You know, the big ones, are, are the big names like Paul McCartney, Burt Bacharach. How could I've ever imagined that when I was a little kid listening to their songs on the radio? Toussaint, yeah, yeah, or Alan Toussaint, the same. But you know, the fact that we got to do that record with Alan Toussaint when he was, you know, his life had turned being turned upside down, like so many people in New Orleans. I went went to see him in Joe's pub, and he's playing his songs on stage. It wasn't something he commonly did outside of New Orleans. You never used to see him perform unless you went there for jazz fest very occasionally he'd only been on the road twice in his whole life he'd been in new orleans making records all his life so to get to share the beginning of what became the last 10 years of his life and career some of it with him seeing him actually get that reaction on stage the things that i'd loved since i was you know teenager mm -hmm. and hear him sing those songs and take the mic sometimes from me was was unbelievable you know, and and the, all of the things that he did in the studio, you know, he'd say, if he, if he had some doubt about something that had been played or sung, he'd say, well, what do you think about that? And he knew the minute he said that, you were completely fucked, you know, like he knew you hadn't got it right. He, <laughs> he was so gentlemanly, but he always allowed you to arrive at the decision it wasn't good enough. Mm -hmm. You know, he didn't dictate. So all of that is why there's still another one, hopefully. I don't know whether there's another one. I make everyone as if it's the last one. I think it's since we've been able to make records long. It's why some of the records, classically speaking, are too long. Some of the records have 16 songs on them or something like that. Because I just think, I better record these because they're going to find me out in a minute and stop me from doing this. Right. Well, you have had this thing from the very beginning of uh, recording a lot of songs and putting out almost everything that you can mm. in one way or another. We grew up with the idea of singles not necessarily being tracks off albums. Yeah. They, they you know, we the, the 60s, there were a lot of records that just, you know, they might have, you might be just singles artists that never made albums. Or the Beatles had a lot of songs that weren't on albums. They were put on the albums in America. So the idea that a song just existed as a single was really, made it really exciting. So we held mm. to that even into, basically until we signed with an American record label for for the whole world. Right. Our releases were all out of sync with American releases. You know, right. Of that. Yeah, I'm, I'll never truly understand uh, why Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane is no. not on Sgt. Pepper's no, or they, whatever. No, they but. seem to be long, but the record album wouldn't be better with them on. It would just be longer. You know, those two songs were supposed to be heard the way they were, either side of a seven-inch. How do you have the guts to stand up on stage at the White House in front of Paul McCartney and Obama and belt out Penny Lane, a performance that's going to continue to get all kinds of crazy accolades, also thanks to the trumpeteer. Oh, the, 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 the Marine trumpet yeah. player played that high trumpet power. It was incredible. I mean, you know, that's very tricky. That's out of the register of that instrument. But um, he was, 
you know, you do a lot of things, one-off things, TV. That's one of the joyful things, I think. I'm not just saying this because I'm here, but one of the things about our work together, you know, I did a lot of performances on the other channel. You know, I, as you mentioned at the beginning, I hosted The Letterman Show one time when Dave mm -hmm. was ill. And I played 32 appearances on that show in many, many different configurations. There's some of them where I look at them and I go, something makes you tighten up when you when you got to do one song. Mm. Quite often you you don't get it right when it's just from a standing start and you've got to hit it. Because you're overthinking or trying too hard or something, you know. And the two occasions that I, that have sort of, funny enough, they're Lennon and McCartney. One is Live Aid, because I had nothing to lose. I was on my own. I was an intermission act. <laughs> you know what that is? You know, the yeah. cheeky one while they make putting the other band up. I mean, that's the third really bad piece of news for the attractions was like when Geldof called me in Australia and said, I want you to do Live Aid. I said, oh, sure, we'll do it. And he said, the bad news is the band can't come. Right. It's just you. Because of money or whatever? Or? No, not money, because they didn't, they, they didn't think we were successful enough. Oh. And, and he was having me on for sentiment. And... Well, he, he, he needed to he needed to have the time to set up like I love the Boomtown Rats. But, no, but it was you know. between Spandau Ballet and Nick Kershaw or something. You know, there were like a <laughs> couple of bands that were really in the charts. But you know, when you're trying to raise money for people in a famine, you don't need some guy that nobody remembers. Was it really that long of a time period? Yeah, from well, it is in England. Yeah, it was like five minutes, and they've forgotten you. You know, so I mean, it was like it was it was like oh, who's that guy? It was like oh, he looks a bit weird. And then I started singing the song everybody knew and everybody sang along, so it was fine. And the same was true when Paul got the Gershwin thing because he, you know, to be honest, everybody there that day had been very nervous. And the producer said to me, uh, have you got anything to say? Because nobody's saying anything. And I did have this thing to say because my mother does come from just a mile from Penny Lane or less than a mile from Penny Lane. So I made this thing up about how we heard it on the radio and everybody in the family listened, which was sort of true because my parents did listen to the Beatles and appreciate them. And the fact that there were local lads made good, people that didn't really like that kind of music liked the idea of their success. It was a very different world, very class-bound world then, you know? Mm -hmm. So the, there was a pride in them coming from Liverpool, even though they quickly moved out of Liverpool. And I just thought, fuck it, I'm just gonna enjoy myself. I mean, this won't come again to do this. I'll never be in the White House again. Uh, you know, turned out to be a good choice, actually. Didn't it really, really think about it, you know? Good choice of song yeah, and... Good uh, choice, but I mean, a good choice of, like, I'll just be here this one time. I've been there once since with my wife when she played the Christmas party. So the, but, uh, I mean, it was, it was, it was really thrilling. It was, it was looked down and there's Paul and there's you know, the president and it was, it was really incredible, you know? Okay, well... I've asked you this question before, and the question is, why were you not on Do They Know It's Christmas? You responded, because I was dreadfully unpopular at the time and wasn't called. I find that story no, no, simply really, not believable. No, no, it is. It is believable. It is believable. It's the pop success in England was 77 to 80, and then this fluke hit with um, Goodyear for the Roses. And by the time we got to the time of 85, we were... But you had every day I write the book. Wasn't a hit in England, not really. Oh. It just scraped the charts, but it was very much like, uh, it's that guy again. No, don't think so. You okay. Know? 
Shipbuilding was a bigger hit than everyday shipbuilding. But right. I, not my version, Robert Wyatt's version. Mm. You know what they needed? They needed everybody who was in the charts that week because it was about recognition and those sort of things. But bro, you you would have killed that. You would have killed that. that. Yeah. And also, it was a gang of people that wrote together. I didn't know any of those people. You know, it's like I didn't know Midge and these people. I knew Bob. Geldof, he was the kind of guy that would come backstage and tell you you were shite, you know, after he'd always be first in the dressing room <laughs> when he came off and be with Phil Linett from Thin Lizzy and, and drink all your beer and everything. But he was mouthy dub, you know, and he's he's a good fella, but um, it was it was just different churches. It was That's the only way I can describe it. I, we weren't in the 80s in England. We weren't, we, we were going, at the time that that, uh, that was all happening, we were playing to like 10,000 people in you know, places in Chicago and things like that. We were playing to big audiences at that time because of Everyday I Write the Book built. Everybody that had sort of vaguely heard of us in the late 70s then woke up to our existence, the broader audience that didn't follow us from day one. Mm. That one little minor hit, and we got on like, what, what was it, Solid Gold, that kind of thing. That's the only time we were ever on mainstream kind of music television other than SNL. And at that time we began the kind of run from about 82 onwards of being appearing on late night television. And that was nearly all on the Letterman show. I did the Tonight Show once. What, with Carson or Leno? It was during the Carson era, but it was uh, Joan Rivers. Okay. And then I did, you know, Jay a couple of times, but I, twice or three times maybe, compared with, with, with uh, the stuff in New York. Nothing so much, you know? Yeah, I, I guess I just, I, I was in America during the 80s, so I guess I had a different experience. Totally different timelines. And it, it's something you come to terms with, and it's like, it's something that's pointed up when I do a record like this one, where, where it sort of seems to have caught people's noses in a few different places, and I've been doing interviews with all sorts of European countries. They all have a different song. I mean, there's countries in the world where the only song they know of mine is She, because it was in a big movie. Mm. But in Holland, it's I Want You. Mm -hmm. So th that would be never got on the radio in America. It's too long, you know. I was rocking Goodbye, Cruel World. Like uh, you would, no, I no, mean, I know, uh, I windows know. down, I know. blasting well, it. Yeah. You're you the know. only one. You're the well, only one. But the, you know, I'm not making it sound like a sad uh, sad story, but that's really what, what it is. And it was like these big, you know, sort of uh, flag-waving numbers with all this stuff in, in the mid-'80s. I mean, you should have the people that get the money over the counter. That's what you needed to do was raise the money. So get all the people they recognize that were on on the pop magazine last week. Not somebody from five years before, you know. Screw everybody who doesn't like Goodbye Cruel World. I hate you. You're wrong. You suck. <laughs> you have no idea what you're talking about. My favorite one is, yeah, I didn't write. My favorite one is I, I Want to Be Loved. Yeah. yeah, that's a good record. So yeah. Teacher's Edition, is that the Teacher's name? Teacher's Edition, yeah. It's on high. It's a Willie Mitchell production, yeah. Did you feel abandoned uh, at that point by your fan base or no, by... No, anything? no. I, I mean, I think there's people that, that, that we, you know, I, the band wasn't really, you know, we went, we went in to make that first record with Clive Langer. And, you know, out of that, there are two really great records you know, that have nothing to do with the main thrust of those records that are Pills and Soap, which was recorded before it, which I produced, and Shipbuilding, which Clive and I wrote for Robert Wyatt, but I wanted to uh, more people in the world to hear it. 
and Robert's version didn't seem to travel outside of England. So we cut it and we got Chet Baker and that was amazing, you know. Mm. So the rest of it was, you know, a really, you know, sort of determined uh, mission on Clive's part to make a hit record, you know. I mean, and, and when you chase a hit record like that, and maybe that's why I don't... A hit you know, single or a hit, hit single. record? Well, both. Because you end up, when you're trying to have a hit single, you end up screwing up the album as a whole. I guess that Every Day I Write the Book wasn't terribly representative of the rest of the record, which was mostly horn-driven, but it wasn't... He had so many hits at that time, Clive and Alan Winstanley, with Madness, really great records with Madness. And there's... I can't find any fault with, with they, either of those records from, the, from anything they did. I think it's all in the, uh, in the, in the lack of cohesion in the band by the second record because we were falling apart. You know, We were all play, singing a different tune. Right, but if you look at those two records, and <laughs> the, make hold on, I'm making a case because the thing that ultimately holds them together is what ultimately holds a lot of yeah. songs and music and albums together. Despite all the pop production, yeah. you still included an acoustic guitar on a lot of those songs, oh. which is what connects the listener directly to the song. Yeah. despite yeah, yeah. the production. Oh yeah, uh, the element within her. Oh, that's a good song. Yeah. Um, Charm School. That's two songs going on at the same time. That's the one I wrote and the one we're playing. You know, I mean, it's like, but I think they're both attractive, but they're not always cohesive. When I listen to them now, you could play it the acoustic guitar way, and it would be a different. It's like a but there the is an acoustic guitar. I know, but it's still but it's fighting the bass and, and keyboard. Right, you know? right. Well, yeah. you know, live and learn, right? I know. <laughs> That's why you get to make a second, another record. <laughs> but you didn't name it "Goodbye, Cruel World," thinking this is the end. Oh yeah. yeah. You definitely. did. Oh yeah, yeah. I was definitely out at that point. Yeah. Oh, I was out at that. By point. the time you titled the album, you felt you, you were already out. I was. I didn't even want the record to come out. I was just like, I. I went on the road as solo before the record even came out. I already knew it was. A, it was a dud, but we were already committed to the release by then. So, but I there were like, hits. Only Flame in Town. Here, a little bit. Yeah, because Daryl sang on it. Daryl was. Daryl was good value. <laughs> yeah, so. that was fun. That was that, that video was fun to do. Yeah. Yeah. Win a date, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, if you're in a video with him, it's pretty hard, you know. Like, he's so handsome, you know. It's like, he's, he's not going to look that great standing next to Daryl, you know. You want to go watch him play drums? <laughs> <laughs> I got to go. I got to get up. And what time is it? I don't know. About one o'clock in the morning? Punch the clock, bro. Is it? I better go home. All right. Well, I... let me do a, a fancy ending. Yeah. QLS listeners, this has been an incredible night. I'm sure we'll make two episodes out of this. Thank you to Questlove, wherever you are. Wherever he is. <laughs> wherever, Let's go down and wherever we ask may him find a couple him. of questions down in the booth now. Okay. Down in B. Thank you for your time. It's Thank you for your music. Thank you for everything. Thank you for having fun. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I knew we'd have fun doing this, but this has been... Just we'll do it again. It. Yeah, we There's, should. You two can talk for twenty hours. So was, we'll set that up. That was pretty a, funny. Yeah, we'll set up a marathon talkathon oh, for yeah, yeah. you guys. Yeah. But thank you for including me in your catalog. And, oh, and man, for, uh, are you, you know, kidding? It's like, this is great. You know, there's always another thing down the road. That's the way to look at it. Well, let's I come know. in here and do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I love this room actually. Yeah, yeah you've never know. done a full record here, right? No, no. We did a little bit of the work on Look Now in here. I'm right. Cup couple of things and you've got to get electric in here now. i yeah. bet yeah we know it on that no all right all right man thank you elvis Costello. thank you bye-bye thank you Bye <laughs> that was fucking wild it's probably two o'clock in the morning say love you
We'll work on the fact that that's a fade out. Yeah. Well, we have sad news. <laughs> we've been fighting a long legal battle and we've lost. And we're going to be taken over. Hey! Hey! Let me in here! Whoa! This is my radio station now! There's someone at the door! <laughs> Let me in! Now, we're gonna have 24 hours with Elvis Costello. That's the new format! The end. I mean, that's the weirdest thing I've ever done. The end. I mean, that's the weirdest thing I've ever done. The end. I mean, that's the weirdest thing I've ever done. The end. I mean, that's the weirdest thing I've ever done. The end. I mean, that's the weirdest thing I've ever done. The end. I mean, that's the weirdest thing I've ever done. The end. I mean, that's the weirdest thing I've ever done. The end. I mean, that's the weirdest thing I've ever done. Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.